Thank you everyone very much for joining us today. I'm really excited about today's program, which is about reimagining nursing home care, something that I've been thinking about, always thinking about for a long time, but especially now in the face of the COVID pandemic. Next slide, please, Eric. So a little bit about us, for those of you who are not familiar, we're the Long-Term Care Community Coalition, LTCCC. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization entirely dedicated to, to improving care and quality of life for people in long-term care facilities, particularly nursing homes and assisted living and um, uh, adult care facilities, excuse me, adult homes, et cetera, other facilities where people um, receive care services and home. We are also home to two long-term care Amazon programs in New York State, both in the Hudson Valley. Uh, very proud to have that association. LTCCC does policy analysis and systems advocacy, both in New York State and nationally. And more and more over the past um, eight or 10 or so years, we've been doing education of the general public, consumers, families, especially uh, long-term care ombudsmen and other stakeholders on, on nursing home and adult care facility issues. Uh, speaking from the coalition today is uh, Eric Goldwine. He's our policy and communications director. Eric joined LTCCC in the summer of 2019 and he became our policy and communications director early this spring. Uh, I'm Richard Mollett and I'm the executive director. I joined LTCCC in 2002 and I just celebrated my 15th year as the executive director of 2005 to 2020. Hopefully we'll keep that going. Uh, and our website is nursinghome411.org. We always talk about a lot of different issues on our programs and they tend to be pretty substantive. Uh, so I always refer people back to our website, nursinghome411.org. We always have the materials there posted. This program will be posted there uh, by the beginning of next week, as well as on our YouTube channel and in, as a podcast. Uh, but we always have all of the materials to support the things that we talk about are available on our website. Next slide, please. So today's agenda, very quickly, uh, we're going to have a brief update from Eric on COVID-19 data and policy developments. I'm going to talk a little bit about where we go from here again, what I've been thinking about and some of the issues that I think we need to be um, working on as a society when it comes to, to nursing homes. And then we have a very special guest speaker today, Kathy Encino, who's a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, and advocate for nursing home reform and transformation. I believe, I was just talking about this this morning, that I've known Kathy since the start of my career at LTCCC 18 years ago, and she is a longtime advocate. I invited her to speak today because she submitted testimony to our state um, legislature at hearings on the um, on nursing homes. And I was so moved by Kathy's uh, written testimony that I asked her to speak about some of the things that, that she was talking about, some of the things that she's experienced, some of the things that she has worked on. Uh, so without further ado, I'm gonna go over to Eric, please. Okay, thanks all. and. Uh and looking forward to today's presentation, especially Kathy's, uh, Kathy's part of it. Uh, but before we get started with that, I want to first go over some COVID-19 data and policy developments uh, that I, I know we, uh, some of you heard from me a month ago. A few things have changed. I'm going to just go over that. So I'm going to start 
with the update on COVID-19 data, um, as you've probably seen in the news and read in your, uh, in your local newspapers or online, cases are uh, rising nationwide. Um, it varies place to place, state to state, community to community, uh, according, and the same is true of long-term care facilities. According to Kaiser Family Foundation, there are 375,000 COVID-19 cases. That's among resident and staff, uh, and 67,000 deaths, which is 40 or 39% of the overall 39,000 deaths. Um, from about a month ago, that's 100,000 more cases and 10,000 more deaths. Uh, the data is also being reported uh, by CMS. The numbers are, are lower, although still uh, far too large. Uh, they report 286,000 confirmed and suspected cases and 46,000 deaths, as well as significant state and regional variation. At the local level, um, if you see our chart on the bottom right, our policy intern Kira put this data together, you're going to see that in New York State, the deaths are plateauing. Um, there are 6,610 long-term care deaths in New York State. This is according to the Department of Health. And you can see our data at this link on the bottom left. Uh, that's nursinghome411.org slash ny-nursinghome-covid-data. Now, the last thing, and this is the most important thing I'll say about the data, is to take it with a grain of salt. I'm going to sound like a broken record. I'm saying this every time I've uh, spoken on webinars. Uh, but there's issues with the data, there's under-reporting, there are data entry errors. There was one report which was widely publicized where a facility with 80 beds was reporting 180 deaths. Um, and that's even as bad as things are, that's uh, clearly a data entry error. Um, and as we know in New York State, there is controversy over how many of the long-term care deaths happen outside of long-term care facilities. Those are not included within the 6,600 uh, long-term care deaths. And lastly, it's not just about cases and fatalities. Uh, the effects of isolation, uh, neglect, abuse, substandard care that we're hearing about, that we're seeing about, uh, it's it's the costs of that are so large and are not captured within the data that I just mentioned. So again, these numbers are indicators, but uh, what you're hearing also tell a big part of the story and what you're seeing and what you're feeling. From a policy uh, update, we have a big update yesterday. Uh, CMS announced that they are, and that's the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, directing states to resume normal nursing home and provider oversight. Uh, previously, there was reduced oversight directed to states to conduct surveys related to infection control and investigate complaints only if allegations were immediate jeopardy. Um, so now uh, there are, they are moving back to normal regular, regular surveys and complaint investigations identified as non-immediate jeopardy 
medium. And on, in DC, uh, we are seeing um, some updates, although a lack of updates. Uh, there, are, there are several uh, key proposals and bills up in the air. Um, I, I mixed them up. There's so much language going around, but there's the HEROES bill, which is the House Democrat bill, and the HEALS Act, which is the Senate GOP bill. I recommend going to the link in the top left of our screen for a, uh, an explainer of what is what. Uh, currently, talks are on hold. The Senate adjourned through Labor Day. You'll see a picture on the top right of a beach and a pina colada, and they are not um, in DC. So some key issues that we're concerned about is first, litigation immunity. And this is included in the HEALS Act. And this is uh, something that LTCCC does not endorse. It removes uh, nursing homes liability for negligent care and lifts key protections for residents. Uh, another issue uh, or another, uh, yeah, another issue being spotlighted in these bills uh, is our strike teams. These are federal funds to states specifically for strike teams to manage COVID-19 outbreaks in nursing homes. And uh, another issue is emergency funding for PPE, testing and support. Again, we do want funding we, going toward nursing home residents and protecting nursing home residents. However, LTCCC does not want money being uh, funneled to the providers and ending up in their pockets. So we are um, advocating for guardrails for any funding to providers. Uh, then lastly, uh, if you want to tell Congress to say no to immunity, like uh, immunity uh, protections, I recommend completing the form at the National Consumer Voice website linked below. Um, and that's you just sign your name, you write your name, you write some basic information and that'll let your legislators know you uh, do not want to remove a nursing home's liability for negligent care. And lastly, uh, is, I just want to discuss our coronavirus resource center. I'm going to go through this quickly, um, but if you log on to nursinghome411.org, on the top of our screen, you're going to see our coronavirus resource center in big purple letters. It's also at nursinghome411.org slash coronavirus. And sorry, there's a fly uh, in my room, but uh, in the screen there are, uh, or in on this section of our website, We've broken it into four categories. There's resources, data, news and reports, and federal guidance and requirements. Um, our resources include fact sheets, including our new vaccine on nursing home care and the coronavirus. We have webinars such as today's, such as the one in July on COVID-19 data, and uh, one on the nursing, and we have uh, podcasts, including I spoke to uh, an administrator at a Baltimore facility, at a facility in West Baltimore that has kept its case count to zero. And we discuss what they've uh, done, uh, where they found their success. Uh, we have our data center here um, where you can find federal data, state data, New York center data. Uh, we also recently posted nursing home testing allocations where you can find uh, uh, information about testing in long-term care facilities. 
we have our uh, nursing home news and reports section, which I recommend looking at our blueprint for restoring visitation rights. I know uh, many families are uh, desperate to see their loved ones. And here we have a plan that we are advocating in order to restore safe visitation. But then lastly uh, is our coronavirus uh, federal guidance and requirements. And this lists some of the recommendations and guidelines from the center, from CMS and from the CDC and directs you to those helpful links. And again, this is all available on nursinghome411.org slash coronavirus. And I'm going to uh, hand it back to Richard. Terrific. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, I just want to highly recommend the, uh, the podcasts are really interesting. Uh, Eric just spoke, as he said, to someone from uh, one of the many nursing homes, um, or growing number of nursing homes across the country, that it's being revealed, didn't have necessarily a lot of money, didn't have a lot of resources, um, but that they were able to safeguard their residents from COVID-19, from and their, their staff as well from COVID-19, and also provide some decent and humane quality of life services for their residents at this time. Because too much of what I've been hearing about over the past five or so months has been residents that are essentially imprisoned in their facility, and that's completely inappropriate. So I'm going to go quickly because I don't want to leave time for Kathy. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about how did we get here, what led up to the pandemic, um, because this is important. Um, this is not something that should have been a, um, wasn't inevitable, but it also unfortunately was not a surprise. And as I note here, I was really taken, I was listening to the BBC expose the institutional rot in our healthcare. And I think that's especially true for our long-term care and our nursing home care, is that it exposed underlying serious issues that have been uh, evident for years. Low staffing, and, and most of our nursing homes don't have sufficient staff even to just meet the basic clinical needs of their residents. We've had years of poor infection control. And I include the link here to the GAO report that just came out in May, uh, which found that 82% of facilities that were surveyed between 2013 and 2017 had citations for inadequate infection prevention and control. And this drives me nuts because we're talking about hand washing. We're talking about changing gloves between caring for people and basic sanitation of healthcare equipment. It's not brain surgery. And there's no reason why this is not happening. Um, lastly, as we've talked about a lot in our work and in our programs, inadequate monitoring and oversight. And in addition to that, on top of these existing problems, during the pandemic, as Eric you know, alluded to, um, we've had a blockade on family and Amazon visitation. People have not been able to get in, and I didn't realize until um, you know, March when this first happened, how much care family members and friends are providing to their residents. It's not just a friendly game of pinochle, is that they're a lifeline, both in terms of basic services and again, the humanity that we all need. I, I think I've said this in earlier programs, but I remember speaking with a clinician in April who said people need human contact. Not having human contact results in clinical um, degradation to the resident. We need that. It's not, it's not something that is just fluff, it's not something that doesn't matter. It matters. 
Uh, of course, we've had, as Eric also said, no regular surveys until they just made the announcement yesterday that those surveys can resume. So the state agencies, our departments of health, have not been doing regular inspections. They've been only doing very limited responses to complaints. Next slide, please. How do we get out of here? Uh, and that's something, as I said, I've been thinking a lot about. One, immediately, we need to resume regular state surveys and complaint investigations. As Eric said, as I just said, the federal government, CMS, said that states can resume. We need to make sure that they do resume. This is not, shouldn't be something that is uh, up to the discretion of the states, up to them to wait till they feel like it. I heard from one state that they weren't doing surveys earlier on because they didn't have PPE. PPE should be prioritized for the state surveyors and they should be going in, they should be addressing complaints and they should be um, again starting regular and robust surveys. We need to resume as many of you have said um, and as Eric pointed out also, family and ombudsman visitation safely and appropriately, but it has to happen. Um, and then we need to triage facilities where residents are in distress, either through strike teams or some other means it's not appropriate for nursing homes to be under the gun, to be operating in so-called emergency conditions for month after month after month. Uh, very quickly, near term, um, some near term things that we believe we think are important. One is there has to be, as Eric again mentioned, accountability for any relief funds given to the industry. It's not appropriate for the industry to take billions of dollars in taxpayer funds and then turn around and say, but we need money to pay staff. We need money to pay for, um, for PPE. You've been given billions of dollars for a reason. Uh, and it's not to pad your wallets during this time of crisis. It's to make sure that we get through the crisis as easily, as smoothly, I should say, as possible. We need to improve enforcement and oversight, including for sufficient staffing, uh, for infection control. Importantly, I think for medical direction and administration, things we don't talk a lot about, but we will talk about more, and quality, quality improvement. That facilities need to be addressing their issues and the administration has to take responsibility. And lastly, and we're gonna start talking about this in a moment, um, we need to move forward now and, and some more, some more, excuse me, long-term goals is to address the structure of nursing homes, address the policy around nursing homes and how those policies are implemented and change practice in nursing homes. I think that this has made clear how absolutely essential these changes are. It's not something that can wait. Uh, it's something we need to get started on. It's not gonna be easy, um, but I'm, with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Kathy uh, to talk about some of her insights, which I thought, again, were just um, really quite remarkable. So thank you. Kathy, please. Yes, Richard, uh, and all of you that uh, have signed up to participate today, it's wonderful that we're looking at reimagining the nursing home uh, because um, we can improve staffing, which is urgent. We can improve infection control. But if we continue nursing homes as they have existed now for decades, uh, all of these uh, tragedies, all of the suffering and deaths uh, will, in my opinion, have been in vain. But many of us feel this is the time to not just correct the major deficiencies, but to transform nursing homes as they exist, because they really don't serve the needs of the elderly people, nor of their families, nor of the staff and their families. And you know, they really don't serve the needs of well-intentioned administrators as well. 
So I hope by um, uh, reviewing with you some of the experiences, some of the things we've seen, um, uh, that we can show and demonstrate that by aiming higher, uh, by actually uh, looking to transform what exists, uh, we will be uh, really advancing ourselves enormously. You know, um, nursing homes are overly problem focused. Uh, the residents' whole lives aren't known when they enter a nursing home for life, for, for living for the rest of their lives. Um, they're known only by the cumulative clinical data that's been collected, as if they were entering a hospital or as if they were entering a doctor's office. But when you enter a place to live, uh, people really need to know everything about who you are, who you, what you care about, who you care about, what your hopes and preferences and, and dreams are, and they don't diminish with old age. They don't diminish as the days dwindle down to a precious few. In fact, there's a greater urgency uh, in old age that our lives be meaningful, that our lives have purpose, that relationships are reciprocal. It's not that I am the object of care. I am the participant um, mutually with staff um, in, in obtaining care that I need, but I'm really here to live my life, my days, as fully as possible. So my hope is that uh, increasingly we can reach well-intentioned administrators who will discover, as we've discovered, uh, that by changing this whole nursing home system in a very uh, entire way, uh, uh, they will be able to achieve what so far is eluding even the best intentioned administrator. He cannot or she cannot produce the results that they fervently wish to so long as they maintain the present structure. I'd, I'd like to just uh, tell you um, uh, a, a couple of experiences that will illustrate this, I hope. Um, back in the, the 90s, um, I was visiting someone in a nursing home a very large one in, in, uh, in New York City. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of discussion about changing the physical environments of nursing homes uh, to make them homey and, and more attractive. And of course, I support that, at people having their own rooms, at private rooms and baths and so on. But the most important thing is the human environment. And I've worked in nursing homes where they transform the physical environment, but not the human environment and nursing home residents still suffered a great deal. So let me tell you a little about this experience um, in a large urban nursing home, 800 beds, uh, and on a unit that had more union grievances in one unit than the entire 800 bed facility combined. Uh, they had experimented. Uh, most nursing home floors have more women than men because women live longer than men, right? But in this unit, they decided to have many more men uh, on the floor, hoping that they would relate to one another and have good relationships. Um, but they didn't change anything else. It was still an oppressive environment with the resident unknown, not knowing one another. When you live in a congregate setting, it's like living in a dysfunctional family if people don't know each other, don't matter to each other, don't care about each other. If relationships between residents and staff aren't reciprocal and mutual, even though their roles are different, uh, it's still going to be a, a bad experience. At any rate, getting back to this facility, um, um, people were cursing. Uh, some were throwing chairs. So when I visited someone on the 4th of July, 
1995, uh, getting off the elevator, you hear what you usually hear. Uh, and excuse the language, but this is what the residents heard day after day. Man shouting at the top of his lungs, cock-sucking sewerette. The next resident saying, shut up, get out of here. Just pat bouncing off the pale green walls. Many residents lined up in their wheelchairs uh, along the wall with their heads down, trying to muffle out these awful sounds. Uh, nothing to look forward to in the day. So I greeted this woman and uh, after our greeting, I said, you know, today is the 4th of July. Would you be up for a party? She said, sure, but, you know, how is this possible? So I went to the head nurse and said, you know, today's the 4th of July. She's a wonderful nurse, uh, Mrs. Dorian Samuels, country of origin, Jamaica, uh, extremely dedicated nurse. She said, Kathy, we can't do a party today. I'm short-staffed. I'm doing medications, wound care, entering data. I'm even helping with toileting. I'm helping bathing. I, I, can't. I said, no, no, no. If I do it myself, just myself, would that be okay? And so she said, please be careful. She was obviously uh, 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 scared of what might happen, what might go wrong. But as I approached resident after resident, and they each person said, oh, yes. Oh, yes. There's a hunger in every nursing home resident for engagement, to participate more in life. There wasn't one person who said, nah, I don't feel like it. So I wheeled people, I walked people, and we formed a semicircle of about 25 of us. And um, just as I was about to start, a woman in the wheelchair next to me was pounding on the arms of the wheelchair and started screaming, why, why, why? Well, no, normally when a person disrupts, they're escorted out of the room. But when I, where I grew up, uh, you always respected the elder. <laughs> you, you would never think of, uh, uh, of in any way criticizing the elder. It just wasn't in the vocabulary. So I thank this woman for asking why. Don't we all ask why? You know, that she's really helped us begin in the most beautiful way that maybe maybe we all need to quest for meaning together. And she looked proud. She sat up tall in the wheelchair and smiled. And then another man said, ah, I thanked him for reminding us that in our group, every voice counts, every person matters. And people started looking at each other and nodding because this was going to be an affirming environment. And what I also discovered was the man who would shout out, these obscenities, the other man who would say, shut up, get out of here. When I looked at each of them and smiled, the tension drained from them. So I saw it was more like a kind of, it's not Tourette syndrome, but a kind of anxiety reaction to being confined in a place, not having a voice, not knowing if they're going to be uh, respected and received. So, I, so one learns a lot when you change how you treat nursing home residents. It opens up tremendous areas for new research into what are traditionally called problems are really opportunities for us to learn so much more about fellow humans, ourselves included. Um, you know, uh, we're all chaotic inside. And Nietzsche reminds us that when there's chaos inside and you affirm it and get to discover it, you can give birth to a dancing star. So I want to tell you what happened with the residents on this 4th of July party. 
I thought, well, I didn't know what to do. I'd never seen a gathering of nursing home residents. About 70 to 75% have cognitive loss and, and, and a range of difficult uh, physical frailties. Uh, so I thought, well, maybe we, we could start with singing. And I thought just randomly of my country, tis of thee, and asked if they wanted to sing. And they did. And uh, so I ran through the melody and just cued them one phrase, each phrase in advance. And they sang as if their lives depended on it. And I said to them, you know, have you been singing together before? They said, no, we never have. I said, you sound wonderful, better than the general public. Um, would you, and they looked very proud. I said, you know, you reminded me of something I never knew before with that song. I didn't realize that Martin Luther King Jr. ended his I Have a Dream speech at the end with uh, Let Freedom Ring. Let Freedom Ring from Stone Mountain, Georgia. Let Freedom Ring from the mountains of Manhattan. Let Freedom Ring. So I wondered, would you sing it again? Would you mind? And this time, would we try to let freedom ring in each of our hearts? Would we try to let freedom ring up and down these halls? Would we sing to let freedom ring in every nursing home in the United States? And they said, yes. And they sang it like, if I tell you, I wish I had a recording because it was absolutely gorgeous and stunning. Um, and um, um, it led us to then, and then I realized that I'd been underestimating them and uh, started talking about all kinds of things with them. And we had fun. We had a lot of fun. We were singing all kinds of songs. And suddenly a man said, hey, wait a minute. My name is Herman and I'm 96. And I don't think we're allowed to have fun like this. And another man said, my name is also Herman and I'm 98 and I think it's okay. So the first man said, well, if he's much older than I am and he says it's okay, it's okay with me too. Pretty soon they were laughing. Um, and um, soon thereafter, by the way, the head nurse, uh, Dorian Samuels, this wonderful, uh, very dedicated nurse, said, Kathy, you know, after that 4th of July party, the staff say the residents seem so much happier and they're easier to take care of. Would you mind doing this again? And so we started doing it week after week for many months until a wonderful certified nursing assistant, Mrs. Shirley Harrison, also from Jamaica, took it over many months later and did a beautiful job. But in the ensuing weeks, I brought in poetry. Uh, we discussed everything. And their participation was extraordinary. One of the men uh, decided to, uh, let's say when we sang something fun like uh, Give My Regards to Broadway, uh, he said, you know, let's not sing just Remember Me to Herald Square. Let's sing Remember Me to Harold Square, one of the men in the group. And so increasingly, and then the joy of that, and Harold just beamed, and we left. And with each song, they came up with different ways to honor different members of the group. And we got to welcome new residents. Uh, we got to uh, uh, praise people for achievements they made in rehab. Uh, people whose grandchildren had achieved different things, uh, the different weddings in a family and so on. And so we became a community that got to know each other and care about each other. Well, that led uh, Mrs. Samuels, the nurse, and the wonderful social worker, Sandy Myers, to say, you know what? We really have to do this for the staff. And they prevailed on administration 
to have me meet with the staff on all three ships every week. And um, it was a, an unbelievable experience because not only are residents oppressed and uh, not encouraged to be all they can be, but staff are terribly oppressed in the traditional nursing home, even in many of the revised nursing homes, and not permitted to have a voice. So um, I started meeting with the staff, and on the first meeting with the evening staff, one man, uh, a certified nursing assistant, slammed his fist on the table and said, in my country, we didn't have terrible places like this. I said, what is your country? He said, it's Ghana. And I said, are you from a big city or a little town? He said, I, I'm from a village, I'm Ashanti. And in my Ashanti village, every elderly person was a national treasure. We had a name for them. Each was called Nana, which means chief. He said, in here, people are so disregarded and, and people are so dismissive of them, I can't stand it. I said, you know, Mr. Mensa, his name was uh, Opataku Mensa. I said, you know, what you're telling us is the most important thing. We need you to help us make this unit into your Ashanti village, where every man and woman is known and becomes a national treasure, where every man and woman here is Nana or chief, tears streaming down his face and with the staff. And they did. He did it, they did it, we did it together. And it worked this way. I would ask the staff, who's the resident you're most concerned about? Because we're gonna to get to know every single person as an individual. And in every nursing home where I did this subsequently, the same thing always happened. The staff always identified the same person that they were most concerned about. And in this case, it was a man who was a very amiable guy, but every night after dinner, he would quote, go crazy. He would storm to the nurse's station, uh, open up the drawers, throw phones all over the place, throw charts on the floor, screaming, screaming. And they said they had psychiatric consultations and the psychiatrist explained that the man has Alzheimer's and is sundowning. So they said, well, what can we do about sundowning? I said, let's file it under S so we know where to retrieve it if we need it. But let's try to understand what it is he's seeking that's really what we need to do. And so I asked the staff, uh, oh, and Sandy Myers, the social worker, I asked her, what do we know about this man? And she said that his wife said that he was a highly successful businessman in international import export business, highly successful, and was the kindest, most gentle and loving husband, father, and grandfather with never any shred of unpleasantness or aggression, nothing. So I said, who was willing to role play Mr. So-and-so? Mrs. Anchalan Menker from Ethiopia, original country of origin Ethiopia. I'm, I'm so privileged to know staff from countries where ageism isn't prevalent as it is here. Staff from countries, um, from uh, African, Asian, and Caribbean countries whose contributions in nursing home transformation have been extraordinary. Anyway, Mrs. Menker said, I will role play Mr. So-and-so. She sat at the table and did what he did every night after dinner. She slammed her fist down like he slams the coffee mug down. Oh, and I said to the staff, this time, let's repeat every word he says, every gesture he says. So we're all gonna look and try to understand what is it that this gentle, successful, kind person is seeking? What is it that he's trying to do that he lacks the language to express? So, uh, and by the way, this method is, is um, 
described by Angela McBride, a nurse many years ago, as being the guide by the side, not the sage on the stage. So if you already know or have a feeling of what this man is seeking, you don't voice it, you keep reframing it so that the staff are curious, interested, and become the detectives themselves in, in solving this problem. So she slammed her fist down like he slammed the coffee mug down and stormed toward the nurse's station, this time yelling for all she was worth what he yells, which is, which was, I want a line, I want a line, I want a line. And Mrs. Menker went like this, she said, oh my God. He wants a telephone line. He wants to call his wife. Because as all of us know, when you're separated from the person you love most in the world, nighttime is a vulnerable time. You want to talk to them on the phone before you go to sleep. You know, you want to touch base. You want to hear each other's voice. If, let's say you're traveling. You always call the person you love. Always, always, always. So, um, um, I'm sorry, I'm distracted by some things on the screen that are appearing. Um, so that night, uh, oh, and I said to the staff, um, you know, uh, this guy is probably thinking, what's the matter with the staff? They're such nice people. All I want to do is call Francis. And they, oh, I didn't tell you, the staff were ordered. Oftentimes, staff are ordered to do terrible things to residents by people who don't know the residents. They were ordered, the orderlies were ordered to drag him to his room at night and confine him in the room. And he would get more and more enraged and not open the door, not let him out, okay? So that's, and the staff said, we hated doing that to him because he hated it more than anything, okay? But they did it night after night because that's what they were ordered to do so that he wouldn't throw charts around and so on and so forth. So uh, with Mrs. Menker's discovery that he just wants to talk to his wife, <laughs> uh, that night after dinner, uh, she, as dinner was ending, I watched from the hallway. She approached him and said, Mr. So-and-so, would you like to talk to Francis? And he did exactly what she did. She said, no, would you like a telephone line to call Francis? And he did what she did. He said, a telephone line. I couldn't think of the word. His face glowed and was rosy and happy. She had arranged already with the wife, with his wife. He sat night after night after dinner talking to her privately and you could see the rosy glow on his face and she said thank god she missed him every night and this way they could both sleep and be at peace so we have staff um needing to have a voice needing to discover who each resident is we're not an accumulation of our uh, clinical data alone <laughs> his love for his wife is paramount um so the administrative nurse said but what's his diagnosis and I made a big mistake. That time I said to her, the diagnosis is love because he truly loved his wife more than anything. And that's what he, he just needed to talk to her. My mistake was, I mean, that was correct. My mistake was not appreciating her dilemma because nursing homes are reimbursed according to the acuity of residents. So every time you help residents not be upset, become known, become appreciated for who they are, um, their score goes down on behaviors. And after a while, the nursing home loses money, big money, big time. So I appeal to everybody who's listening to try to figure out the reimbursement dilemma, which really is a disincentive to providing good care. That's a policy issue we really need to hone in on. And I would hope, by the way, 
that if we're really successful, we can invite administrators to join in this discussion because um, they're really, uh, some of them, I've met a couple recently who are more well-intentioned than others that I had met years ago, but they're really stymied by the reimbursement issue. Um, so that's something I hope we can all think about, and some of you are much better on that kind of question than I am. Uh, that needs to be corrected. But what happened then, uh, oh, by the way, Mrs. Menker subsequently said, oh, I have somebody I want to bring up next week. Um, it's a man who, um, I, every time I go to bathe him, he spits at me, he bites me, he kicks me, even though I'm very kind and all of that kind of thing. So again, Sandy Myers went back to the family and uh, tried to figure out uh, everything we knew about this man. And his children said, ah, there's only one person that our father ever loved deeply, deeply, deeply. And that was his mother in a small town in Ireland. He would talk about her incessantly, 24 hours a day, if you could listen. That's the person he loves most. And Mrs. Menker just said softly, I wish somebody had told me that. So what did she do that night? Instead of saying, oh, Mr. So-and-so, it's time for your bath. She never used the bathing word. She came to the door and said, Mr. So-and-so, I have to help some other people, but I'll be back soon because I really want to hear about your mother. She said, my mother? Oh, yes, come back. I want to tell you about my mother. So when she came back, discreetly having the warm basin of water and the washcloth and stuff out of his sight, as she bathed him, she asked him about his mother and he talked beautifully, lovingly, eloquently about her. Uh, so what, what staff need uh, is this information about each person. Instead, you know what they were given about each person in the unit? None of these materials. They were told about each person, a little index card they showed me, said the same thing about each person. Demented, incontinent, combative. That's hardly giving staff any information to, to relate in a very warm way with each person. And relationships have to be reciprocal. So um, uh, I would say that, um, well, I, uh, yes, it, I, something I really need to bring up is that once you start on this path, uh, the good ideas become contagious. So um, in addition to the parallel meetings between nursing home residents and staff, where all kinds of good things started emerging. Oh, and staff need to have a voice. The, the satisfaction surveys of staff say over and over again that the main thing that direct care staff complain about is not having a voice, not being respected, um, their opinions not being valued. Um, and, and of course, the same is true of residents. They certainly don't have a voice either. So this model may shock you to hear the term empowerment of residents and empowerment of staff but in the many, many instances in many nursing homes over the years in which this has been applied, never once has that caused a problem for any nursing home. It has enhanced relationships. You have people living communally, but not using group in a very active and beautiful way to promote relationships, to promote uh, living more fully. So that's something that we advocate strongly. But as I was saying before I interrupted myself, uh, uh, good practice is contagious. And uh, Sandy Myers, for instance, the social worker, did some wonderful things. One man said to her one day, you know, my brother is, is dying, I see that. 
and um, he was um, a much decorated colonel in the Air Force in World War II. So I'm writing his eulogy. And Sandy said, that's nice, but why wait until he dies? Why don't we honor him now? And his brother said, how? Sandy said, well, next week is Veterans Day. Why don't we have a whole meeting here of the whole community of all the resident staff and family members and honor him? And so on Veterans Day, that's what happened. Sandy had a little um, wooden stand and this man's, uh, a chest of all of his medals was on the stand. And the resident was sitting, Ramrod, this former uh, colonel in the US Air Force, knowing exactly what was taking place. And as the brother recited each uh, citation that accompanied the medal and pinned it on his brother's chest, the, everybody applauded. Those who could stood in appreciation. And soon the man's chest was covered with medals. It was a beautiful event. In other words, use the calendar to change each day, just as we do in our own lives. We celebrate holidays, we celebrate everything. Uh, a Valentine's Day, 4th of July, whatever. Uh, uh, my favorites for nursing home residents will always be both the 4th of July and Martin Luther King Day, because we're really talking about the liberation of people. We're talking about undoing injustices of decades and decades. But anyway, um, this man was honored in life, and within two weeks or so, he passed away. And so Sandy assembled the residents and said, how will we honor him? our hero um, uh, uh, that we had just uh, honored two weeks earlier. And one man said, well, we got to have taps because he was in the military. And Sandy said, well, how would we do taps? And he said, well, I'll play it on the piano. And Sandy said, that would be wonderful. Didn't say to him, he used to play the piano, but was so frustrated because of his cognitive loss that when he saw the keys, he would pound on it in frustration because he couldn't play anymore. Sandy just said that's a lovely idea and called his wife and his wife came every single day taped where middle C was and practiced with him until he learned again to play taps I mean he used to play complex works which he couldn't do anymore but at the funeral at the memorial service for our hero this man played taps on the piano not a dry eye in the place because we're honoring a World War II hero who passed away, and at the same time honoring the courage of this other man and his heroism in, in, in approaching a way to honor his friend uh, in a way that he felt would be most fitting and beautiful. There are many, many more stories, but we're running out of time. I just wanna add a few more things that happened. Um, Sandy Myers also uh, said, you know what? Because we're forming a neighborhood now, a community, of residents and staff. I know I have to end soon for the question period, but, but this is an important thing that she did. She started a newspaper, a newsletter for the floor, called it Our House. And what did it do? It featured residents in every issue and staff in every issue. Uh, family members contributing articles, residents were interviewed, staff were interviewed. All of the activity was toward forming more of a community, more of a neighborhood. Mind you, this is taking place in a large 800-bed facility, traditional hospital-looking thing with the long floors, transformed into a warm, vibrant environment where people cared about each other, knew each other, had fun together, and quested for meaning together, and honored each other. Residents and staff having mutual reciprocal relationships. Um, 
uh, I just want to say one other word about structure before I forget or run out of time or get hooked off the screen. Um, I saw a nursing home um, that was finally one where I thought, my God, I could live here. And it was the only nursing home where I had that feeling like, you know, I could really live here. Well, what did they do? They voted to add um, a little gym on each floor. It consisted of a treadmill and recumbent bike and a wooden bar with stretchy things so they could exercise. And uh, for me, uh, physical fitness is extraordinarily important for people of every age, and it doesn't diminish with old age. Uh, and uh, people who pace uh, to discharge um, energy, uh, people need to use a recumbent bike. I've helped people in my community to do that, uh, despite cognitive loss, and they've enjoyed it. The other thing this nursing home had, which I've never seen in any other nursing home, in each private room, bare bones, all of the stuff, but they had, you know, a little oak desk with a drawer. So a person had a place to put a laptop, um, to write, to read, to have a cup of coffee that didn't look like a hospital thingy that you raise and lower in a bed where you could sit and, and dine, actually. So it had many features that really had residents in mind. Um, uh, I, I just want to say, um, oh, in parting, I guess I have to do this. Um, in one of the nursing homes where I had this first meeting with residents and we sang uh, in the first meeting and then we had discussions and poetry and everything else, a man came up to me right after the first meeting extended his hand, big smile, says, hi, my name is Bob. I'm president of the resident council, and I think I know what you're up to. I said, what's that, Bob? What, what am I trying to do? He said, you are trying to have a civil rights movement for residents in nursing homes throughout the United States. I said, oh, what a great idea that is. And what do you think of it? He said, as a black man from the South, I want to tell you, it will be harder to achieve justice for nursing home residents than it has been to achieve justice for black people in the South. I said, so hard is that? I, I said, so what do you think? He said, oh, we gotta do it. We gotta do it, we gotta start now and keep going. So with that, I want to tell you that I'm very pleased that so many of you have participated, that the coalition has decided that reimagining nursing homes has to be a goal. We have to aim higher, I think. And I hope that administrators will begin to get the message that their lives will not be harder, will be much easier and more enjoyable. There's, a re there's an administrator in Northern Maine whose work I loved, that one day if we have a chance to do this again, I'll tell you what he did. We have some innovators among administrators too, who've come up with wonderful things. So with that, I think I'm supposed to end uh, with my great appreciation to the coalition and to all of you whom I couldn't see but just like at night, when I go out at night, I can't see the stars in New York. I know they're there. So I know you're all there, shining bright and eager to help make this civil rights movement for nursing home residents a reality. And thank you. Kathy, uh, Brava, thank you so much. That was just um, wonderful. And thank you for your thoughtfulness, your advocacy um, with individuals and systemically and uh, every level. It's, it's so much appreciated. I'm going to um, oh, actually quickly uh, wrap up. Yeah, if you go down, uh, and I think what Eric was doing, Kathy, was trying to make the, um, the, the slides smaller so that people could see the captioning 
bigger is my guess. Uh, <laughs> in any case, thanks everyone for joining us. We're gonna have uh, a few minutes for Q&A, but first I wanted to let you know that our next program will be September 22nd, again at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, the focus of that program will be residents' rights, right to vote especially, uh, right to self-determination, and right to equal access to quality care. Uh, you can join us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash LTCCC. Of course, our website, nursinghome411.org. And you can email info at ltccc.org to sign up for uh, future alerts. And without further ado, um, Sarah, if you wouldn't mind reading um, some of the questions, see what, how much we have time for. And Kathy, the first question is for you, as are many positive notes in the chat. Yeah. They all love you. Um, how do you, Kathy, imagine the new nursing home culture impacting the existing administrator's top-down training? How do we retrain a cultural mindset? What a wonderful question uh, for, to whomever raised it, I thank you. Um, one of the things that we could offer is uh, a kind of coaching for administrators and for administrative staff in nursing. The same kind of non-judgmental environment uh, where uh, nobody is criticized, that we could kind of search together what are some of the obstacles that, that administrators would face in implementing this. It's a wonderful question. And uh, I really would hope um, that we could somehow extend an invitation to the very well-intentioned administrators who aren't in it to make a big profit, to make millions on the packs of nursing home residents, but who really want to make a difference. If, if we could really encourage them to come together and we'll do coaching sessions uh, on how to achieve this. It's very hard. The hardest people to convince are administrators. The easiest people to convince are the residents, the staff, and the families. They're totally on board. When you start going up the hierarchy, it gets scarier and scarier. We need to help them. So thanks for that question. Thanks, Kathy. Kathy, if you're not too tired, I'm going to ask you another one. I'm <laughs> Is there a home that works the way you like? Yes, I, I found the one that had the gym uh, and the, uh, you know what else they, uh, you know, it's a small nursing home in Seattle. It's the only one I found in the many nursing homes at community, continuing care retirement communities where I felt, oh, I'd love to live there. Um, but it's for nuns of the Sisters of Providence. Uh, and I'm not a member of that community. But what I loved about it was the empowerment of the residents and the empowerment of the staff, the place hummed. You didn't see the depression that you see. You didn't see people lined up. They were all actively engaged in addition to the little gym that I told you about. Oh, let me tell you about the gym. There was a nun on the treadmill who had an oxygen tank on the rim of the treadmill while she was holding on, okay? Another nun uh, resident was in the um, recumbent bike. And then there were three chairs and the repartee the kibitzing back and forth was hilarious. And they were teasing the one on the treadmill. Once she gets on that treadmill, you know, it's a good thing they had to put in a 10 minute limit because we never had a chance. So I went to the nun on the treadmill. I said, you really like it. She said, oh, you have no idea. I used to have to lug the oxygen tank around so I couldn't walk. Once we got the treadmill, I parked the oxygen tank on and I could hold on and finally exercise and walk. It's just made my whole life uh, immeasurably better. 
And everybody is afraid, oh, residents are going to fall, they're going to fall, they're going to fall, but we don't exercise. <laughs> so our muscles atrophy when we don't exercise, and that happens to elderly people too. So the name of the home was St. Joseph's. In addition to the little gym that I would find indispensable in any nursing home I had to go into, um, and in addition to the oak desk where you finally have a surface where you could do something, you know, they also decided to have a small classroom uh, and, and Eric will appreciate this because the first subject they chose, the residents chose to have classes in was in how to use the computer, how to use technology <laughs> and the smartphone and everything else so they could stay in touch. And boy, I would be in that class seven days a week. Uh, so they really listened and asked residents every day, what is it that would make life better? How can we do this better? And they would come up with suggestions and do it. It, it seems so straightforward. Um, and, and all of the uh, fancy things I see about, you know, uh, the new environments, I've never seen one that included exercise on the floor, a place where residents could exercise. I've never seen one that had like a place for a classroom on different subjects. So um, we really need to rethink, um, is this for private pay residents to try to increase that percentage in the fancy schmancies? Or is it designed to really address what nursing home residents need to live fully and well? I hope that answers your, the person's question. Thanks, Thank Kathy. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, I'll, I'll ask one last question if that's okay. Um, this is from um, Margaret Oldfield. Have you written anything we can read about enhancing community among residents? And I would say, if not, if you have any recommendations for people that they, uh, of resources that they can go to, that would be, um, um, of interest, I think. Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you, Richard. Um, I really like the work that uh, Rosemary Fagan and Barry Barkin are doing. Uh, and Jeff, I don't know, I can't pronounce his last name, Jebrica, something like that, that they're doing with the Pioneer Network, the three of them, I think Rosemary Fagan, Barry Barkin, and Jeff, somebody or other. Uh, they're really addressing reimagining the nursing home and producing a paper. They're calling it the Live Oak Project. Uh, and Live Oak is the symbol. I also like the work of, and they did publish, of Steve Shields and Laverne Norton, uh, Follow the Sunbeam or something like that. But Steve Shields' work is really quite beautiful. Um, and um, I hope uh, I've started to write a book about this. And uh, if I have enough time left in my life, I hope to finish it uh, and publish it. But it's a, it's a great question. It should be not just for advocates. We want a tool <clears throat> so that nursing home administrators and staff and family members that everybody can use, you know? So thanks for the question, Richard. Thank you, Kathy. And Kathy, thank you so much again for just a, a wonderful program. Thank you, Eric, and thank you, Sarah. Thanks to everyone who joined us. Have a good afternoon, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.